this Logical Callcast, where we discuss innovators of law and technology. I'm your host, Robert Hilson of Logical, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Ron Friedman. Ron is a well-known legal consultant at Fireman and Company in Washington, D.C., who has spent more than two decades improving law practice and legal business operations with technology, knowledge management, and alternative resourcing. Ron was one of the first non-practicing lawyers hired by a large law firm, uh, what is now known as Wilmer Hale, to manage practice support, uh, and he pioneered legal process improvement, knowledge management, electronic discovery, virtual law libraries, law firm portals, and online legal services, uh, among other things. Ron, that's a really impressive bio. Thanks a lot for being here. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, and I look forward to our discussion. I do as well. I, I saw the term knowledge management in your bio. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that means and what it entails? Sure. It's, it's really about capturing and reusing and sharing know-how. It started uh, in the 90s before it was called KM or knowledge management as work product retrieval to find documents. And today it's evolved as much into finding experienced lawyers and matters that are similar and connecting people, connecting the right people in the law firm to the right people who can help them do the work or in some instances cross-sell and connect them to the right resources. I think that kind of helps us set the stage for our discussion because I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, You've been in the legal market for more than 25 years. You've uh, done a lot of different things. Um, I want to ask you kind of what do you view as the most important innovations in legal services um, over that period of time? Uh, It's a great question, one I've thought about on and off over the years. And while we have a myriad of, of new tools and technologies, Uh, spanning from document assembly in the 80s to uh, all kinds of big data analytics today, uptake has been, in my opinion, on the low side. Uh, And and some of the innovations, when I think about my own law school experience, I graduated uh, NYU Law in 1986, and I was already doing computerized legal research, which was very innovative then and had really just gotten its start. But on the tech front, I guess the biggest change that I would think in in law practice has been email, the advent of email and the internet. Really, that's changed the not so much the nature, but the way we do work the most. I guess you could put word processing in there, although that was already existent when I started. Uh, but I think since then the change has really been incremental, in spite of all these legal tech startups and some of the. Bigger innovations may be now more process-oriented with, with the adoption of legal project management, pricing, budgeting, and monitoring, and alternative fees, which I put together in one bucket, supported by technology, uh, but it's as much about the process. You mentioned low uptake, um, and that you know that's, that's a problem uh, to innovation. What, what do you see as the reasons for the low uptake uh, within the legal market? I think that change management is hard for anyone. Uh, if you look, people just don't like to change in general. And the best way to get to change is to answer the question about what's in it for me. So when you see law firms innovating centrally or trying to roll out a new system or a new process, uh, partners are not going to adopt it unless you answer the with me question, the what's in it for me. And contrast law firms to consumers, you know, on the consumer side, and this is true for many, Starbucks has largely replaced, for those of us who are old enough to remember the Bunomatics, the <laughs> brand of a glass carafe that would sit on the burner all day, and we called that coffee back then. Uh, likewise, smartphones have largely replaced flip phones, and the lesson is 
there has to be a clear benefit to the person changing, and that hasn't always been true in the legal market. It's not that there are no benefits, but do the benefits accrue to the person who has to change his or her behavior? And that has not always been the case, and a lot of the adoption planning is around making that case and developing more stories of successes so one partner can say to his or her other partners, hey, I did this new thing, and here's how it helped me service my client better or increase our profitability. Ron, I wanted to ask you specifically uh, about law firms. Um, what do you believe are the biggest blind spots for firms in terms of successfully delivering services in a way that, that meet their clients' expectations? I think that there's a tendency for law firms and, and, and partners to not fully understand their client preferences and, and, and parameters, if you will, uh, around three key areas. One is what's the scope of the matter and the risk the client is willing to take so that they lawyers do the appropriate amount of work? Are they looking for moats? Is the client wants you to look for most moats of dust or just the boulders is a big difference. That couples to then the approach to pricing, and we see a lot of discussion and move towards alternative fees, although I don't think we've, we've cracked the nut entirely yet. And there's, and, and, and again, related to that is how partners communicate with clients, both at the outset to do the scoping and the risk assessment, and then how is the matter progressing. So I think those have been blind spots, and and I also think it would be helpful for law firms to think more carefully about the types of matters, and you can type matters in multiple ways. The way I like to do it is, a, is just a four-bucket approach with on the high end, you have bet the company matters, and that implies a certain amount of effort and ways you would uh, work on that matter. And then next down are uh, high-stakes matters. Below that are run the company. And then at, at the bottom, and bottom doesn't necessarily mean bad, but are commodity or routine matters. And each of those types of matters requires a different approach to the clients. And I don't think lawyers often think about it that way. And even in-house counsel aren't thinking about it that way. I think it would help them to understand where each matter sits. And that should drive how we deliver service. So, I mean, do you find it's a problem that law firms, you know, at times are approaching commodity cases like bet the company cases or, or vice versa? Exactly. Right. You, they, right. If it's commodity or routine, commodity is, is a hot button for some lawyers. But if it's, let's, let, let's use the word routine. Mm -hmm. If matter is routine, then you really want to have form documents, precedents, playbooks, well-established procedures, well-trained associates, and uh, delegate the work to the lowest possible resource, offering it at a fixed price or a price for a portfolio-related work. And that's very different than that the company where you may put your highest paid partners and the client, frankly, may not care how many hours it takes because they're much more interested in the outcome than, than the um, than the exact cost. If billions are at stake, you're not going to care that much of your legal bills are 10 million or 12 million. Uh, but if it's if it's a lot of stakes matter, then then it, the equation is different. Now that's well put. Um, so you you touched on this a little bit in one of your previous answers, but I, I did want to ask you for law firms, um, what do you see as the biggest obstacles to changing in a way that allows them to to deliver um, better, more affordable client services in the the way that you're talking about? The biggest obstacle, I think, is the billable hour. Mm -hmm. So there's still, in spite of all the talk about changing, most law firms are rewarding 
their lawyers based on the number of hours they bill or the, the amount of business they bring in as opposed to delivering value and client satisfaction. So that becomes a huge barrier. I was at a conference recently and that was the theme of the answers of, uh, it's actually a session that I led at ILSA where we did a workshop and, and across the workshops, each of which had a slightly different angle on it, the biggest problem everyone saw was partner compensation models. And that leads also, I should just say, to the tension between individual motivation to bring in more business or build more hours or keep more associates busy if you're a partner versus the institutional motivation, which may be to service the client better, cross-sell more, and, and package your, your services in a different way. And I don't know that some firms have cracked that nut, but not, not that many. Okay, interesting. Um, so th there's this general feeling, um, or at least a, a sense that I get, uh, that client pressure, and particularly pressure from corporate clients, um, is driving law firms to deliver better services at lower costs. And I guess my question for you um, is, is that really happening? Or, uh, you know, is, is corporate not exerting the influence that that narrative suggests? Well, I, I've said in Twitter, and I've said at conferences, <laughs> in, in my view, the general counsel bark is worse than the bite. So I, I see a disconnect, and it's hard to get all the data to prove this, but I see in, in conferences and, again, reading a lot that in-house counsel complain about their outside counsel, but how often are they switching law firms? And clearly, if you drop a law firm, if I'm a GC and I drop a law firm, I'm not going to publicize the name of it, right, because there's no upside to embarrass a firm or your friends publicly, but, but exercise of market power, in my opinion, would involve in-house counsel making it clear that business is at risk, that they have changed law firms. And, and I'm seeing in the last couple of years more surveys that show some of uh, the rotation of counsel, and if, if the clients were clearer that businesses at risk and clearer on their expectations, I think they would get better service. What are some other ways to exert, uh, you know, market power aside from, you know, finding a new law firm? Are there ways that uh, corporate counsel can apply pressure without, you know, seeking other, you know, counsel? Uh, sure. They can insist on alternative fee arrangements and have engagement letters that say, here, here is how this matter will be pursued, here is the budget, and this is how we will monitor, and this is the service level agreement that we want, and the service level can include, you, you can't guarantee outcomes, right? That's, hmm. that's not what the uh, legal advice is about, but what you can ask for is certain response times and that that matters be handled in a certain way. Uh, there have been some clients who've talked about auditing their outside firms, not just for the, for billing, but on how they how their lawyers use technology. Are they doing it efficiently? So, uh, coming from the outsourcing, I spent four years in an outsourcing company in the management team. And when you're in the outsourcing business, you talk a lot about metrics, service level agreements, and uh, governance. And if you're a GC and you have a big budget and you're working a lot with outside law law firms. You can apply those same principles to get the service you want. It's it's a lot more work, frankly, than a lot of in-house lawyers are willing to do, in my experience. 
Um, Ron, you wrote a blog post recently comparing uh, law firms to airlines um, in, in the way that they price their services. I was wondering if you could just uh, explain that a little bit more. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, think, I think the, um, the, 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 the laugh there is that uh, what the similarity is confusing pricing, uncertainty around pricing. And I have to say, uh, I understand the confusion more with airlines. So I do travel regularly for business. I'm regularly looking for low airfares. And if you read the business press, as I do, you'll understand that airlines, A, are doing yield management, meaning the price of a seat changes dramatically day by day uh, and and by class of service and competitors coming and going and signaling perhaps, well, signaling may not be the right word, but you know they're changing fares hundreds of times a day. Uh, so you have a very complex pricing mechanism. You had the addition of a lot of fees, which are, which, which are disclosed, but make it hard to compare baggage, seat selection, food, uh, early boarding, etc. So it's become very confusing and hard to predict what you will pay. And, People in the exact people sitting in equivalent seats in any class of service may have paid dramatically different prices. With law firms, I I think the confusion is that there's not sufficient budgeting and attention given to the scope of the matter, and so the unpredictability is caused by a completely different set of factors. That given more attention, a lot of that unpredictability would go down. I don't think you can eliminate it but you can reduce it, whereas in the airlines, it's inherent. But the bottom line is both are confusing to their customers. And Ron, you've talked a little bit about budgeting, and we've touched on alternative fee arrangements as well. Um, in what other ways are law firms delivering more innovative, uh, acceptable pricing models for their clients? Well, I, I, we do see a, a number of firms, quite a few firms, offer alternative fee arrangements, and then you have to distinguish between ones which might just be what I'd call uh, almost a shell game where the firm honestly believes it's an alternative price, but someone uh, has has computed what it would be at hourly, and they're just positioning it in a different way. But where it it really makes a difference is when the work is being done in a different way. So it's not just a matter of how you price; it's how you deliver. So there are firms that have alternative staffing uh, that are using lower cost lawyers uh, in either within their own offices that are not on the associate slash partner track or that work in a low-cost center doing document reviews. So firms like um, uh, Reed Smith has a document review center in Pittsburgh. Wilmer Hale has one in Dayton, and they have lower-cost lawyers in those locations. And then those firms that are working efficiently and really scoping properly then they put the right resources on and control the amount of time those resources spend. That supports true alternative fee arrangements. But just looking at law firm literature is hard to say. You really have to get in under the covers, so to speak, to understand what's what's happening. Interesting. Uh, Ron, I want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. Um, one of them is that, you know, there's this assumption that the legal industry and again, particularly law firms uh, will continue to change only at a deliberate pace uh, because the legal uh, environment is naturally resistant to change. Um, but we've recently seen other stagnant industries turn on their heads literally overnight. And I think of, uh, you know, something like cab companies, right? Is legal susceptible to that kind of dramatic disruption? I mean, do you foresee a time where where, where that's possible? I don't. 
though many commentators do. My view is if we didn't see dramatic changes stemming from the economic crisis of 2008 through 2010, uh, why would we see it now? And the challenge is we live in a walled garden uh, in the legal market, meaning there's a lot of regulatory barriers, which I, I personally oppose, but we have to recognize you have the, for law schools, you've got the accreditation challenge, and for law firms, or, or rather for providing legal services, you have the all the statutes in all the U.S. jurisdictions on the unauthorized practice of law, which makes it very hard for competitors to come in. Uh, and that now Uber faces some of that, is, and we're seeing it now in Europe, in some of the European countries, uh, the taxi regs applying to them. So, if if all the taxi regs had applied to Uber uh, in every location, we might not see their wild success. And just think of legal as having those taxi regs, and they're actually enforced, and people worry about them. So. Uh, and the sad news is that to some extent is even in England where they've lifted some of those regulations and you have uh, this idea of an alternative business structure where non-lawyers are allowed to have ownership stakes in law firms. To be sure, there's been a lot of ABS businesses approved and doing business, but I don't, you know, my read from across the ocean is it hasn't dramatically changed the corporate law market. It's probably had more impact on the consumer market. So I just don't see what the impetus to change will be, given the barriers and given what we've seen in England and also Australia with uh, deregulation. And interesting. Um, Ron, before we go, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, explain the concept of do less law, hashtag do less law, which you um, uh, unveiled at uh, ILTA, I think, uh, earlier this summer. Well, actually, I unveiled at ILTA a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. There build up momentum behind this meme, that idea, the an internet idea. So I needed, I wanted a reasonably short phrase and I wanted it to be a Twitter hashtag. And for those who are uh, involved in Twitter, you know that you don't, you need to conserve characters. So I, I was thinking, well, what encapsulates the ideas I wanted to pursue? And I, I, I came up with do less law because no one had used it and it, it is intentionally provocative and I wanted something provocative to spur conversation. Uh, the idea behind it is that lawyers often overinvest in solving client problems. They, they provide more advice than their clients want. And this goes back to the earlier part of our conversation is that if you have clear scoping discussions at the outset, then you know how much work you need to do and then if you have better incentives to be efficient and delegate to lower cost, lower cost resources, you can achieve the same outcomes legally, but while doing less law, and that would include process improvement in the tech and, and the staffing. And uh, lately, I've been also coupling that with do right law, meaning do law the right way. So the whole idea is prevention and efficiency and scoping in ways that we 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 hear more than we actually see. So I'm, I'm looking for action on that front. All right, excellent. And if our listeners wanted to read more about these concepts, uh, where can they find you? So I blog and I post my articles at uh, prismlegal.com. That's P-R-I-S-M-L-E-G-A-L.com. That is my professional website. All right, and we'll uh, we'll certainly link to that. And uh, you're very prolific on LinkedIn too, so I encourage uh, our I'm listeners. Prolific to- on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, <laughs> I'm at Ron Friedman. R O N F R I E D M A N N. 
All right. Very good. Uh, Ron Freeman, we will leave it there. I really appreciate your time. It was good to talk to you. Okay, Robert, thanks so much for the interview. It's been fun. Mm -hmm.